Just before we get started, uh, just wanted to invite you to our newcomers brunch that's taking place in two Saturdays from now. Uh, if you are newer here or you're, we, I know it's like to enter into a new community and you see all these faces that you don't quite know. And so we just want to give some space for you to connect with others and to get to know us as a community as well. And so Cho's, Angie, and uh, Philip will be hosting this meal at their place on Saturday the 21st from 11 to 1, and I'll be there as well. And we'd love to have you. If you haven't attended one of these yet or you just want to take a morning off and not have to cook for your family, uh, just let us know and go to wcfchurch.org newcomers so that we can know you're coming. And we'd love to have you there joining us. In his best-selling book, The Road to Character, the New York Times columnist David Brooks helpfully reflects on the differences between our resume virtues and our eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those qualities celebrated by our contemporary marketplace. High test scores, top colleges, a professional career to be, to be envied. Perhaps even having a significant YouTube following or a social media uh, following to be envied as well. On the other side are these eulogy virtues, qualities that are said of a person when she or he is no longer around to hear them. Qualities like humility, courage, kindness, and sacrifice. Eulogy virtues are the qualities that we hope, I think, would be said of us when we move on from this life. We live in D.C. Many of us here, we're in a setting that celebrates resume virtues. In fact, some of you would say resume virtues are a requirement to get ahead here. Asking what do you do to someone new often here is not just an innocent, curious question. It's an exercise of mental gymnastics to see where you fit with one another. You need to have the right resume to get the right internships. You need to network with the right people to get the right opportunities. You need to get your name out there for people to recognize you. And as followers of Christ, this tension exists between this path of humility and sacrifice and kindness and the demands to get our names out there, to get ahead and to make the most of every opportunity. We often want both at the same time, don't we? Our head and our heart tell us that Eulogy virtues are really what we want to embody. But when push comes to shove, it seems that resume virtues are what we really live for and how we can survive. How do we live as active participants in this environment without selling out? How do we determine where to participate and where to draw the line? In this next month, we're going to be looking at these kinds of questions to help us live right side up in a world that seems so upside down, where people who get the most attention seem to do things by resume virtues rather than eulogy virtues. So today we're going to look specifically at this virtue of character. The dictionary defines character as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. And we're going to look at what scripture says about living distinctively as Jesus' followers in three parts, intention, in navigation, and with resolution. You know, around the world, we see tensions from uh, clashing values within minority groups and those who hold power. There's a minority Muslim people group known as the Uyghurs in Western China. 
and they're being detained and re-educated in the name of de-extremification de campaigns by the central Chinese government. In America, both political parties will find support from groups that feel marginalized by wider culture and by those they perceive to hold all the power. But this is an age-old tension that we are struggling with. Daniel is a young man when the Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem. In the ancient Near East, conquering nations would often take the talented, the best young people from their homeland to indoctrinate them in this new empire's culture and language. This was a tactical move. Take away the brightest and most passionate population and re-educate them in your ways to not only do the work of your empire, but to keep them close so they won't be a threat in leading an uprising from the homeland. In Daniel 1, 5-7, we're told that Daniel and his friends are brought to Babylon, the center of the Babylonian Empire, to have their cultural and religious identities wiped out and to create a dependence on the royal court. But the, as worshippers of the living God, there were aspects of their faith that were incompatible with this world that they now lived in. They were given new Babylonian names that signified the depths of this attempted identity shift. Daniel means God, the Lord God, is my judge. His new name is Bel Teshazar, which means O Lady, wife of the god Bel, the Babylonian god Bel, protect the king. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. His new name, Abednego, means servant of the shining one Nebo, another Babylonian god. Their Jewish names pointed to the Lord God of the Jews. Their new names, Babylonian names, invoked the help of Babylonian gods Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. They were educated in Babylonian language and mythology. And under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, Babylon's empire was consolidated, and he went on this massive building campaign. Babylon, Babylon was considered the power-brokering center of the ancient world, like Rome was for the Roman Empire a few centuries later or perhaps like London, New York, and D.C. are for our modern world today. With their new education, they were primed to serve in maintaining and advancing this monolithic empire under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Even their diet had theological implications. By putting them on this royal diet, they were reminded daily of who was nourishing them and who was sustaining them. It would be Nebuchadnezzar, not the living God. And there were incredible forces at work around them that challenged their way of life that they once knew. Their names, their education, their work, and their diet all were designed to point to something other than the glory of the living God that they had come to worship and know. Daniel and his friends lived in this setting, yet found ways to maintain their identity and character in the midst of a culture that was pressing against what they believed to be important to them. Do you think that we might find ourselves today in a similar setting? Now, we may not, or some of you might think we may, have an egomaniacal leader that makes unreasonable requests and demands ultimate loyalty from us, like Daniel and his friends. But the pressure to succeed and to perform according to the values around us might just be as strong. In a world where our education systems and our professional careers are dependent on what David Brooks calls these resume virtues, the outward metrics of success press in against this call to live out eulogy virtues well. 
We're tempted to bend the rules when they suit the advancement of our cause. We may be tempted to sacrifice truth in the name of kindness, or what we think is being kind. We may define our core identities based on how we're feeling at the moment. And if we're attentive, we might notice situations where our character can be called into question in these micro-decisions of the day. Cutting in lines and not happening to noticing people behind you. Not speaking the full truth. Perhaps not regarding the, a day of rest as holy and set apart because of the pressure to be productive. So how do we live this life of character with this tension? Do we perhaps just withdraw from it all so we don't have to navigate it? Our church is affiliated with the Mennonite or Anabaptist tradition. And among many of the admirable qualities of Mennonites are the strong sense of family and industriousness on a sociological level. And on a theological level, this love of Jesus' New Testament teachings and, and this upholding of uh, baptism as, as a believer. But Mennonites are probably most well-known for their being, them being a people of peace, choosing pacifism and a path of reconciliation by all means possible. But there are some Mennonites who choose to practice their faith in a manner that is reluctant to embrace modern technology and development. On a visit to Harrisonburg, Virginia, I was given a tour of the various Mennonite churches there, including an old order Mennonite congregation where they, their parking lot doesn't have asphalt and yellow lines for cars. Instead, there's these pads with these bars in front of them, and I'm like, what is that? And they're like, oh, that's for parking your horse and buggy. Because these Mennonites choose not to drive cars. They're called old order Mennonites. And yet these same Mennonites will participate in the economy by operating businesses using their cell phones, smartphones, or operating tractors on the farms, even though they don't drive cars on the road. And because they don't have cars, they don't, they don't use them to go pick up, deliveries, uh, pick up uh, supplies and to make deliveries. These Mennonites will rely on what they call plainclothes Mennonites to help them with the deliveries. For these Mennonites, they've navigated this tension of engagement with the surrounding culture and expressing their faith in a unique manner of withdrawing in certain areas of life that we would find very critical. Daniel and his friends find themselves navigating this tension, too, in their setting. They had to figure out how to accommodate for some aspects of wider culture and not accommodate in other areas. Daniel and his friends took the new names and went along with this education. And after three years of training, they eventually ended up working for Nebuchadnezzar's administration and find favor in performing their roles. In fact, as the story unfolds through the rest of the book, we find that Daniel becomes one of the most respected advisors in this administration. But not only this administration, but over the course of rule of four kings and three empires, he serves and is respected. Yet they didn't fully embrace this culture around them. They found ways to live distinctively. They refused to be assimilated when it came to this royal diet. In verse 8, Daniel, we're told, resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Daniel and his friends refused to accommodate in this area. But why this particular area? Why food? Biblical experts have been exploring this question for ages. Perhaps it was because this food was sacrificed to idols, some might say. Well, that's not 
that probably isn't the case because the vegetables they would have eaten were probably sacrificed to the same idols as well. Some people think that maybe it's because the food wasn't prepared in a ceremonially clean manner as Jewish law dictated. But that probably isn't the case as well because wine wasn't considered a ceremonially unclean drink. So, and neither was it proposed for, for health reasons as some, you know, Christians I've met who say like, well, this is a better way of eating because it's in the Bible. But this idea of diet for health reasons is a very modern concept. It's not what they were thinking back then. It's likely a combination of these first two reasons, though. The royal food wasn't particularly unholy or sinful. Instead, they used their diet choices as a way to maintain distinctiveness as Jews in the Babylonian culture. This action reminded themselves of their identity as God's people and to avoid complete assimilation in Babylonian culture. With their strict diet, they were building a very tangible and very clear reminder of who they depended on for sustenance and for survival. It wasn't the Babylonian king and its empire, but it would be the Lord God. In other words, their moral choices reflected the worship of the living God, not just a preference that they felt entitled to. Yet they were able to object to this request from the administration without being irrelevant or disrespectful. Their protest wasn't done with indignance. Is that a word? With an indignant attitude or disrespect towards authority structures. They weren't plopping themselves down outside the royal palace, going on a hunger strike and tweeting about the injustices of the administration. How did they approach this? In verse 9 and 10, we're told that God gave them favor with the official. And we hear that the official responds to their request like this, I'm afraid of my Lord and King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than other young men your age? The King then would have my head because of you. Can you imagine that? This person essentially is the slave runner. And he discloses his own fears to the slaves. They had built a relationship of trust with this official overseeing them so that they could talk civilly and honestly about their objections and in a way that showed concern for the official charged to enforce this diet upon them. They were wise enough to know that this official was just doing his job. So Daniel makes a suggestion, a 10-day trial period, a temporary compromise that would help them achieve a win-win situation. Daniel and his friends can follow a diet of their choosing while the official saves face. In verses 12 to 16, we're told that they do go through this trial period, and it goes well. In fact, they look much healthier than the other young men who follow the royal diet. What would it look like for Jesus followers to have this kind of wise engagement with the world that we live in, that reflects God's character in a winsome way? How do we engage in the world yet not be completely of the world? Now, we may not be asked to eat a certain kind of food by our leaders, but we may be asked to work, uh, to, at work to execute a decision that might impact others negatively. I have a friend who served as a president of an engineering company. And because this company uh, worked in the cyclical forestry industry, they were subject to these highly volatile swings. There would be times when revenue would drop because of forestry uh, processing plants, and they didn't have the money to invest in new technology on a regular basis. Yet because my friend was a, a man of faith and of deep character that cared for all of his employees, he would make decisions that would require personal sacrifice 
on his part to keep his employees working rather than to lay people off. He shared about how he actually, as the president of the company, made less than some of his technical experts because, uh, yeah, because the, he cared more about the well-being of the entire company rather than his position and his salary. He navigated these tensions of profit and sustainability with the well-being of his employees. Contrast this to the world of mergers and acquisitions where uh, investment funds are looking for companies that are on the, on the cusp of bankruptcy, but they have significant assets like real estate holdings. Investment managers will take over these companies, gut them of their most valuable assets by selling off the real estate and then leasing them back to this company that can't afford it and then eventually bankrupting the company, laying off entire uh, employees and cutting them off from access to pensions, upending communities. Refusing to participate in this world and its way of doing things is one way to live distinctively. But we could also ask God for wisdom, like Daniel and his friends, to navigate this tension in a manner that honors people. Especially honoring people who might view things differently than ourselves. And while it's easier to isolate ourselves with people who think like us and talk like us and act like us, it's in the nitty-gritty details of rubbing shoulders with those who hold things differently that we find our character is formed in ways that reflect God's character even more. How do we arrive at this place of eulogy virtue character that best images God's character? George Eliot's most revered novel, Middlemarch, features the heroine Dorothea, whose aspirations in the book begin like this, quote, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who have lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Eliot helps readers to see how over the 900 pages of Middlemarch, Dorothea grows from this debilitating self-centeredness to a larger, more, pro more profound, gratifying empathy for others. She becomes a woman of deep character through the unfolding events in her life story, in her novel, Eliot reminds us that people of character may be the ones who change the world, and we may never know their names. Though we are often rushed to get through our accomplishments in the name of professional success and our American exceptionalism reinforces the self as the unique master of our destiny, we find that Daniel and his friends demonstrate quite the opposite. There is a sense of deep confidence and wisdom that doesn't exude anxiety or insecurity in the face of adversity. They work within this environment that they have been called to, but they may not have chosen, and yet they find themselves flourishing there from the inside out. In verses 18 to 20, we're told that they go through this three years of preparation, and they're brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and as the king talked with them, he found that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, were, were none equal to them. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than anyone else in the kingdom. They continued in this preparation work for an empire that was at tremendous odds with their own values. And amidst this tension of their new assigned identity and worldview, their true identity was grounded in something other than their careers and the, their professional performance. 
They wisely navigated through their way, through their faith in the living God. And we find this element of faith is crucial to the formation of our character. They trusted God to sustain as they went on this vegetarian diet. They trusted God by saying no to this uh, royal food. They said no to this royal food by saying yes to God's provision and care. Now, occasionally, I like to post some memorable food I come across on social media, like this huge cinnamon bun. It's like the size of my head. We had this yesterday, and we shared it with our family over two meals, because that's how big it was. And to be honest with you, there's some element of affirmation when people like what I post. Meals are important to sustain us. But I don't think meal choices are meant to be used to gain recognition and affirmation. As Daniel exemplifies, Meals can be a three times daily, well, they should be, I think, reminder of who really provides for us and who really cares for us. Most of our meals are rather mundane and not post-worthy, but they are importantly formative. Where daily meals are formative for the health of our bodies, our faith is formative to the health of our character and of our spirits. In Japan, students aren't tested with any academic exams until the fourth grade because they believe in the goal that the first years of school are not to be used to judge a student's knowledge or learning, but instead to establish good manners and character. Japanese schools will put an emphasis on developing responsibility amongst learners and to ensure that children are capable of cleaning, of caring, and of being polite. In fact, Japanese students will clean their classrooms and their bathrooms and the cafeterias, so much so that they don't even need to hire custodians and janitors to take care of the schools for them. See, this formation of character that unfolds not in selfies from the mountaintop like those on the left. We want our life to look like that, but it's in the step-by-step ascent of this dusty, rocky, rooty trail on the way up. And sometimes when we get to our destination, there isn't a view to be enjoyed, and we can't share it on Instagram. So you don't get the accolades and the affirmation for the accomplishment, but along the way, character is formed incidentally. That is this character that is ebullient and beautiful and eulogy-worthy. You know, as followers of Jesus, we have an example of someone of impeccable character who has made a sweaty, painful ascent to the top of another hill bearing the burdens of our character imperfections upon himself. And dying on the cross, he takes the consequence of all of our blemished character traits. And he invites all who would want to experience this life-giving character to come to him and entrust ourselves to him. And as we follow in his footsteps, we find that our character is formed in ways that we would never imagine possible over the course of our lifetime. And this character that, of Jesus that is gifted to us in Christ is, grants us the greatest favor in the universe, the love and the forgiveness of the living God. As we continue in each of our respective journeys, know that the answer to moral tensions doesn't come from withdrawing, but from engaging fully in this culture led by the one who entered into the world fully, yet never gave up his perfect character. If we entrust our lives to God fully as Daniel did and his friends did, 
And even as Jesus did, we experience a kind of humility and a freedom and a confidence that is distinctive and is wise and that forms our character into the likeness of the living God who created us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, when we look at our lives and the kind of person that we want to be, we often find that challenging in the environment that we live in. But we thank you for stories like Daniel and his friends that remind us that the kind of life that we want to live comes from following you, Jesus. Will you help us to trust you in those areas of our lives that are so natural for us to function on our own strength and wisdom? And will you help us in those areas that we feel afraid of looking, stand, looking different from the world that we live in? Not because we're smarter or, or, or better, but simply because we can be better image bearers of the one who made us. Will you, by your spirit, change us, point out those areas of our lives where we fail to trust you, and make us more beautiful, more wise, and more like you in character, that the world would know that you are real and that you care and that you love us and the world. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.